Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, as America's war in Afghanistan ends, is the global policeman retiring? It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. The West promises to strike at ISIS-K, but will the Taliban help? And if the Taliban at some point, or from the start, say, no, we don't want you to do that, you either just don't do anything anymore in Afghanistan, or we sent assets in there and started pounding ISIS-K. Plus, how the events of the last few weeks have hit Britain's veterans. The tour hasn't finished for them. Our tour still goes on, and we live it every single night. 20 years of war ended in two chaotic weeks in Afghanistan. Finally, what many in the US call America's forever war is over. But that doesn't mean an end to the questions surrounding the withdrawal. President Biden still insists he has no regrets, convinced he made the right decision. I'm the fourth president who has faced the issue of whether and when to end this war. When I was running for president, I made a commitment to the American people that I would end this war. Today, I've honored that commitment. The last U.S. military personnel flew out just a couple of days after the final withdrawal of British forces from Kabul's airport. They leave Afghanistan's future not in the hands of its people, but the Taliban, 20 years after they were deposed. It is, says America's most senior military officer, General Mark Milley, a painful moment. These have been incredibly emotional and trying days and indeed years. We are all conflicted with feelings of pain and anger, sorrow and sadness. And one thing I am certain of, for any soldier, sailor, airman or marine and their family, your service mattered and it was not in vain. He went on to call the Taliban ruthless while also saying the US will have to work with them to defeat ISIS-K, the group blamed for last week's attack at Kabul airport. It's been operating inside Afghanistan for years, another security threat for the West to worry about on top of the potential resurgence of al-Qaeda. Wes J. Bryant is a retired master sergeant and former attack controller in the US Air Force's elite special warfare branch. He told our reporter James Hurst about the complex relationship between the three groups. Interesting thing about you know ISIS-K versus the other two is that they are enemies of ISIS-K. And in fact, ISIS-K is the enemy of the majority of the other terrorist groups out there um, that we call our enemies. And it's the reason is that unless every other group adheres to their strict version of Sharia law, to their version of the caliphate that they want to establish, Um, Any group that opposes that is their mortal enemy. In fact, ISIS-K started fighting the Taliban on the ground starting in 2015, 2016 in Afghanistan. What different aims do ISK, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have? ISK wants to establish that caliphate. That's the most extreme form of Sharia law that one can imagine. Even more extreme than what we're seeing, you know, the Taliban might be reinstituting in Afghanistan. The Taliban itself just wants Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda has many aims outside of Afghanistan, as we know. They're operating all over the world, just like ISIS. They don't necessarily, though, have the intent of establishing a a huge caliphate like ISIS does. Their perception is the Western world has been oppressing 
uh, the Middle Eastern world, especially uh, the Islamic world for centuries, and they want to reverse that. So now that the Taliban is back in power, will Al-Qaeda and ISK have a safe space in Afghanistan? I think it's very possible that Al-Qaeda might. Um, We have seen reports that the Taliban had already been all through last year, been maintaining relations with Al-Qaeda. Now with ISIS-K, if there's anything good out of this whole uh, development, is we know ISIS-K and the Taliban completely hate each other. They, They have been battling for years. Could we even see the US working with the Taliban to fight ISK? Uh, Yes. And, you know, that's where I think it becomes, you know, for me, almost like a parallel universe. And if we don't end up doing that, if the Taliban at some point or from the start say, no, we don't want you to do that, then our other option is either just don't do anything anymore in Afghanistan or we uh, do what we did in Syria. Regardless of what Assad wanted, we sent assets in there and started pounding ISIS-K. Who will be in charge in Afghanistan five years from now? You know, I said when this kicked off that I have hope. I I still have hope. I don't believe the Taliban are going to last long term. I don't think it's going to be ISIS-K. I think it's going to be, you know, basically a resurgence of the Northern Alliance that we're seeing now that's already been fighting uh, against Taliban in the North. And I think we're going to see a resurgence of anti-Taliban increasingly organizing and becoming increasingly successful. And within five years, I think a lot sooner, the Taliban won't be owning the country. That was where's Jay Bryant talking to James Hurst. So more threats for the West to worry about, but both Britain and the US have said they're ready to intervene against terror groups in Afghanistan. And President Biden insists the withdrawal makes no difference. We have what's called over the horizon capabilities, which means we can strike terrorists and targets without American boots on the ground or very few if needed. We've shown that capacity just in the last week. We struck ISIS-K remotely, days after they murdered 13 of our service members and dozens of innocent Afghans. But how easy will it be to contain those threats from thousands of miles away? Well, joining me is Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark and also Dr Alessio Patalano, reader in East Asian Warfare at King's College London. Hello to both of you. Um, Alessio Patalano, the US has bases in Qatar, Kuwait and the UAE. Presumably that's going to be where these over-the-horizon operations will come from. Um, yes. Here the question about these over-the-horizon strikes is not so much where where uh, you will be flying off your 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 assets uh, the rather more sort of problematic question if you want is the one concerning to the ability to be precise is how effective the strikes will be and in order to do so you need to have a, a rather granular knowledge um, of what is happening on the ground in Afghanistan and now with the complete withdrawal that raises an important sort of question about the um, effectiveness of such strikes. Yes, because we heard Michael Clark, Wes Bryant earlier suggesting the US will have to rely on the Taliban, their intelligence to carry out remote strikes, something Mark Milley admitted while also calling the Taliban ruthless. Yes, um, as Wes Bryant said, it's a sort of parallel universe. I think we should be a bit careful about this um, because I don't think the, the idea of strikes against individuals, these targeted killings that uh, the Western powers have gone in for in recent years, would be possible because that's where you do need this immediate intelligence and I don't think the intelligence relationship between the Taliban and the Western powers, Britain or America, 
would be that close. I can't imagine it. I mean, I think what will happen is that if the West sees camps arising, the way they did in the 1990s, Al-Qaeda camps, if it sees ISIS-K camps arising, and remember, they, they were really extensive camps. They weren't just sort of hidden little agglomerations. There were, you know, there were, there were boot camps, there were chemical weapons training facilities. They, they took over a part of Afghanistan, this is Al-Qaeda in the 1990s, and just ran it as a mini-state. If that started to happen again, I have absolutely no doubt that the West would attack those camps, and maybe there would be a degree of information and perhaps exchange of material with the Taliban. But the idea of the Taliban acting as, as were forward air controllers for Western powers, I think that would be quite hard to imagine. Mm, Dr Patalano, the chief of the air staff this week, said the RAF is also ready to launch its own strikes on ISIS-K. Realistically, how much of a role could the UK play? Only a few weeks back, if you remember, from the deck of the Queen Elizabeth carrier, which at the moment has, in fact, um, a combined air wing of USMC F-35s with the uh, uh, RNRAF um, F-35s, the, the conducted strikes in Syria. So when um, the, the RAF air chief tells us that the UK stands ready to conduct these strikes, it's absolutely reasonable to believe that he's right. On the other hand, uh, the question is, what is the operational, if you want, context within which these strikes are going to be taken? That's a real question, because whether we're thinking about more sustainable uh, and sustained campaigns, that is a completely different matter. And basically, since the time of the war in Libya, we know that countries like the UK would struggle uh, to maintain on their own terms without a coalition coalition around them and sort of sustain that operational temper needed for, um, if you want, a prolonged strike campaign. Yes, I, th- I think the essence is that for all the, the same reasons that the United States could strike uh, into Afghanistan, the RAF could as well, using essentially the same bases and certainly, you know, a big facility at Al-Udid that we still have got. And as uh, Alessio says, we've got the carrier and the ca- carrier based air power has been used in Afghanistan frequently by the United States. And now this is one thing that the British carrier might operationally be able to do. And as Alessio says, I mean, with the United States cooperation uh, with the uh, Marine Corps operating their own F-35s from the British carrier. So it wouldn't be difficult, but whether we would be able to do it over a long and sustained period, well, I guess, yes, we would, but it would actually draw an awful lot of resources into it if it became a prolonged campaign. Well, Joe Biden's insistence on sticking to the August 31st deadline for withdrawal has further strained relations between the US and its allies. In the wake of last week's attack at Kabul airport, leaks from the US suggested the gate targeted by terrorists was only kept open at the request of British officials. That's been dismissed as just not true by the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab. And that, says Lucy Fisher, Deputy Political Editor at the Daily Telegraph, shows how tense relations really are between London and Washington. As soon as that um, pretty blockbuster story emerged um, on Monday, I immediately uh, you know, heard from White sources sort of rebuttaled to that suggestion. Someone told me, you know, look, it wasn't just the UK using that gate. Uh, And on record, people like Tobias Elwood, the Tory chairman of the Defence Select Committee, uh, immediately weighed in to highlight what, you know, he felt was the undercurrent of blame to that suggestion. Clearly, President Biden and his administration is under a lot of pressure domestically in the United States over the death of 13 service personnel. But that's really kind of created a lot of tension between the UK and the US. And is, is there a concern that damage to relations with the US could be longer lasting then? I think that's right. And, and not just 
because of this pretty unusual leak um, of classified information from the Pentagon. But I think there's just a sense that the US is behaving in a very unpredictable way. I'm thinking, you know, of, of Joe Biden's um, speech on Tuesday night, really, I think will be an epochal defining speech about, you know, America no longer being the world's policeman. We must stay clearly focused on the fundamental national security interest of the United States of America. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. This sort of wider retreat from the world stage that we're seeing from the US, which is increasingly turning inward. That's obviously, you know, what the White House thinks is in the national interest. I think it's going to have to lead to really serious reappraisal for um, Britain, but also Europe. You know, our entire, not only defence, but foreign policy, in truth, is really hitched to the wagon of the US. And if the US isn't willing to step up and be at the forefront of NATO and, and that kind of alliance and Western alliance that we've kind of relied on since the post-war era, um, that's going to have huge repercussions um, in Britain. Britain and beyond. That was Lucy Fisher, and we'll have more from her a little later. Let's return to Alessio Patellano and Michael Clark. Uh, Alessio, Joe Biden, who told us six months ago that America is back, now says America is not in the business of nation building. That old role of global policeman is over. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, what he's talking about is major military operations for nation building, which is a slightly different thing from the early 1990s type of interventions. This is very much what he was emphasising, is the end of the approach taken after 9-11 on this uh, massive scale type of uh, operations overseas. We have to to sort of wait a little bit more to get a, a true sense of what this withdrawal says in terms of the medium and longer term behaviour of the United States. Because yes, if it is true that the last couple of weeks have shown cracks in the alliances, have shown a very erratic and difficult to understand the behaviour. On the other hand, during the first 100 days, both uh, Biden, Austin, Blinken, they've all been out there uh, signposting the important aspects of American uh, foreign and security policy and emphasis on alliances. I don't think this is a withdrawal from an international stage in terms of leading, but certainly the Biden administration will ask more uh, of its allies, big and small, and in different parts of the world. We've seen already in the Indo-Pacific, countries like Japan, Australia have been stepping up in terms of uh, regional stability, security matters, in, in becoming more proactive and providing more muscle to it over the last few days. The Quad have been one example of the shift towards the multilateral sort of behaviour that the United States expects internationally. I think in Europe there has been a lot of, of, of rhetoric about strategic autonomy, taking uh, steps towards greater independence, but in practical terms, the last couple of weeks, if anything, showed that there is a gap between that narrative and the reality on the ground. Michael Clark, in what kind of position does this leave the UK if you accept the US is stepping back from its traditional role, just as Brexit separates us somewhat from the rest of Europe? Yes, this is the, um, the, the nightmare or the beginning perhaps of a nightmare that some of us worried about uh, after the Brexit decision, that it could leave Britain really isolated between Europe and the United States. I mean, Lucy mentioned there, she said, you know, we, we wonder whether Afghanistan will be an, an epoch-defining moment. And I take that point very much so that, I mean, this Biden's decision was a, was a clear, incisive, unpopular decision that t then turned into a, a real political blunder. 
And if that blunder turns out to define the Biden administration, it may or may not. But if it does define the Biden administration, then we are looking at a, a, an America that's very different to the one we expected when Biden was elected. And then you couple that with the fact that the, uh, the, the Brexit process, although in theory Brexit shouldn't affect security, in reality, of course, it does. And there's a lot of read across from the rows about within Brexit to things outside. And Peter Ricketts has made the point. He said that relations are so bad between Britain and its European allies that it will, we will have to wait until there's a new generation of politicians on both sides uh, before we can get back to a more grown-up set of relationships. So it, the, the, the fear is that between now and 2030, Britain may find itself genuinely isolated, not able to engage properly with its European partners and struggling to stay close to a United States, which is more Trumpist than we ever thought Biden would be. Now, we're not there yet, but Afghanistan has taken quite a big step down that road that some of us really feared four or five years ago. The Taliban's return to power has sparked celebrations amongst extremists in places like Syria, Somalia, Yemen. To what extent has this withdrawal emboldened jihadists worldwide, do you think? Well, I think it's bound to have that sort of effect because it looks like a major defeat for the Western powers, and particularly the United States, and it seems to show that the jihad is God-inspired and therefore if you just stick with it for long enough, it will work. Um, remember that the, the, the two elements that really radicalise some young Muslims in Britain are that you're not a proper Muslim unless you believe in jihad and you're not a proper Muslim unless you want that jihad to create a caliphate. And that, was the, that was the appeal of ISIS first time round in Iraq and Syria. And so what, what this present circumstance may create is although the Taliban want an Islamic state in Afghanistan, ISIS-K want a new caliphate of the sort that they had for a while in Syria and Iraq and were chased out and defeated. So the inspiration will be, oh yeah, good Muslims believe in jihad, good Muslims believe in the caliphate, the new caliphate will be in Afghanistan. And that may well act as an inspiration to young radicalised political Islamists in many countries, not least our own. Michael Clark, thank you very much. Alessio Patalano, thank you for your time today. Well, since Afghanistan's fall to the Taliban, the number of veterans asking for help from one mental health charity has doubled. Combat Stress has welcomed government plans to provide more than £2.5 million in additional funding, warning that for many, recent weeks have revived deep psychological scars. Paul Osborne has more. Nick Wilson is a veteran of the Royal Logistics Corps who helped to train some of those who were heading to Afghanistan. Some never made it back. We gave them as much of our knowledge, our experience, our training and the best of ourselves to give them every chance. But you just can't protect them all. We used to have to, on I think it was a Friday, and for those individuals, multinational, who, who had been killed that week, we would do a parade on the Friday. And the pay last call and we did that every week. Nick has struggled with his mental health ever since leaving the forces and says for him and others, the withdrawal from Afghanistan has been especially tough. Part of it, he says, is survivor's guilt. And I've had many a chat with a veteran who, who are really struggling with the fact that they didn't go out the wire and they're ashamed of, of not being able to do that. And it's something I know within myself that I still struggle with today. And if I could give my life 
for one of them to come back, I would. The scenes that have played out on TV night after night have triggered a sharp rise in calls for help to combat stress. Its chief executive is Jeff Harrison. From that 215 last year, in the first week after uh, Afghanistan really hit the news again, uh, it was 373 in that week, and in the subsequent week it was 428. So it really has doubled uh, in the course of a couple of weeks. So yes, we're concerned about that. But not all the calls have been from veterans of the conflict in Afghanistan. Northern Ireland veterans and uh, Falklands veterans. Uh, and thinking about it, I think there are probably a couple of reasons for that. One is just that whenever you see a, a war in the press, then uh, it reminds you of the, the conflict you're in. But I think the other reason as well is that uh, our veterans, or the military, is such a tight-knit community that when they're seeing what's happening to their colleagues who served in Afghanistan, they feel it personally. They really want to help and support their colleagues. It's left some, like Nick Wilson, wondering if the sacrifices were worthwhile. I'll be honest, there's an element of what, what the hell was it all for then? I lost brothers and sisters. You can almost explain it away. They gave their lives for, for those who, who haven't got it in them to fight for themselves. And if our brothers and sisters have given the ultimate sacrifice and their lives, what the hell was it all for? For those who've managed to escape from Taliban-run Afghanistan, the next challenge is to build a new life. Retired Major Andrew Fox is among the veterans who are trying to help. What we're doing is coordinating with local authorities, getting people to send stuff from the list that they, uh, they provide, which tells us what the refugees actually need right now. Send that to the address at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. And then the local authorities go into the academy, collect what they need and then take it to the refugee hotels where they distribute it to those who need it. He's collecting phone charges, children's clothes and more at Sandhurst. Other veterans have launched crowdfunding campaigns determined to do something to help. I think we feel a sense of responsibility. You know, I don't think anyone could say that the Afghan campaign ended in a, an uproarious success and I don't think we should let the brilliant achievements of our troops the last couple of weeks detract from the fact that this is still a defeat and a failure. And I think people feel that quite strongly. And this is a way to make a difference. You know, we, we, we made promises to the Afghan people that we haven't kept as a country, ultimately. If we can help those people who escaped, then at least that goes some way to repaying a little bit of our debt. In the coming days and weeks, it's likely that Afghanistan will slip from the front pages of the newspapers from the top of the TV bulletins. But many who serve there will still be struggling. At Combat Stress, Jeff Harrison knows it's vital when they ask for help, someone is waiting. I've talked to veterans and they say exactly that. Even though they have served abroad, then the hardest thing they ever had to do, the bravest thing they ever had to do, was to pick up that call and say, I need help. Because that's not how they are wired. We still, unfortunately, have that stigma, the stiff upper lip. It's seen as a sign of weakness. And of course it's not. Uh, it's just a sign that something needs help. The tour hasn't finished for them. Our tour still goes on. We live it every single night. Nick Wilson ending Paul Osborne's report there. There's no shortage of books about the Second World War, but few of them focus on the huge role that women played during the conflict, which is surprising as by 1943, more than four in five women were engaged in some kind of war work. 
We heard earlier from Lucy Fisher, the Telegraph's deputy political editor. She's written a new book focusing on the stories of women in the war. And when I spoke to her, she told me why she wanted to write it. The idea came about in May 2020 at the 75th anniversary of VE Day. As I was writing a feature um, for that time at the Times about some of the women, it really made me realise that this generation, now in their mid-90s at the youngest, this really is the kind of the last phase left to capture um, some of the recollections and memories firsthand before it's too late. So I just felt that there was this sort of sense of urgency to the task. And the more I learned, the more women of that generation I spoke to, the more I felt really impassioned to try and play some small part in putting women's contribution in the Second World War on the map, because I think the role of women has been um, too often overlooked. And most of these women would have been in their 20s, maybe even their teens during the war. And now, as you say, the youngest in their mid-90s, but their recollections were still so strong. Yes, that that's right. And I, I was I was interested by that because some of the people who've made up the 10 women in my book, when I first approached them, they said that they were happy to speak, but they weren't, you know, sure how much they could remember. And, you know, within five minutes, we were just off on fascinating anecdotes and heading down kind of rabbit warrens of brilliant digressions. They were so young when they were given, in some cases, a great deal of responsibility. Uh, did that change in the course of their lives? Yeah, I think it, it, it's really interesting. I was just struck, you know, one of the women I spoke to, Marguerite Turner, joined the voluntary aid detachment as a nurse. She was enlisted on her 18th birthday and right away, you know, had huge responsibility both looking after, you know, trauma patients, um, patients in the kind of last wasting stage of TB, but also the emotional responsibility of coping with death, of coping with having to, you know, she was often um, dispatched to go and give the bad news to the families of some of the, you know, the charges she was left looking after. And that's just such a huge thing for a teenager to have to do. Then I think of um, Jay Edwards, now 102 years old, she became a pilot in the Air Transport Auxiliary. And before the war, she'd had only two hours of solo flying experience. And from that incredibly low base, she went on to take the helm of more than 20 different types of aircraft during the war. That was a role that was, you know, loaded with risk. 168 women took part as pilots in the ATA, of whom around 10% died. And I think that that is a kind of an element of women's experience that is often underlooked too. You know, of course, they weren't, for the most part, in the frontline combat roles that men were. But that's not to say they didn't, you know, face enemy attack. They weren't in the line of fire. But did their experiences during the war, did it change their lives? Or, or was it a case that once the war was over, they kind of went back to what they were doing before? Did you get a sense of that? I think it's a sort of a nuanced answer in the cases of most women. I think all of them felt that it had been really key to them personally in building a sense of self-belief. And I also think that society-wide, there is a sense that, you know, it, it ushered in a new era of liberation. You know, people didn't feel so constrained by sort of social constraints that apply to women. They didn't feel so bound by duty to their parents. Um, and so I think it really is key, the kind of role it played in, in paving the way for the women's lib movement of the 1960s. We all know that the First World War was really key in opening the door to women gaining the vote, or at least the first tranche of women gaining the vote. But I think it's a little bit underlooked how the Second World War paved the way for later battles for equal pay, for equal opportunities, even rights for housewives. But 
many of the women I spoke to also talked of an anti-climax after the war. There was for many of them the sense that particularly those who got married, started families, it wasn't that easy in, in the 1950s and 60s to, to kind of carry on and, you know, completely capitalise on all the gains made during the war. So it, it, it's a bit of a mixed, mixed answer, really. And what was it like meeting and speaking to these women? Oh, well, it was just a phenomenal privilege. I must say that because of the fact that this book was mainly researched and written during COVID, I had to conduct most of the interviews remotely. But just a fascinating experience to speak to these women. And I just got the sense that at the age at which they are at, and the oldest woman in my book, Ina Collymore Woodstock, is 103 years old, that there's really nothing left to prove, nothing left to lose. There was a real kind of raw honesty in the testimony um, that I collected. And just, you know, speaking to someone like Catherine Drummond, who served in the Women's uh, Air Auxiliary Force, she fell in love, she got married. Her husband, um, a gunner in the RAF, um, died when his plane crashed off the coast of Italy while she was uh, eight months pregnant. And just, you know, the raw emotional testimony that came from someone like her kind of thinking back to all that kind of pain and suffering that she kind of went through as a young woman and how it kind of that shaped the rest of her life. I just felt really honoured that people were willing to kind of put their trust in me to sort of help tell their stories. Lucy Fisher and her book Women in the War is out now. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye.